Hello and welcome to another episode of that 60s recording podcast, a podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Hope you've all had a lovely week and I hope you've all had a lovely Easter weekend. I don't know what the rest of the world does, but we get Friday and Monday off as bank holidays here. So I'm uh, recording this off the back of um, three days, four days of essentially just organizing the garden. <laughs> My wife was a primary school teacher and she quit her job um, at the end of the school holiday, uh, at the end of the last term. Um, so this was the first school holiday she's had in in 12 years where she hasn't had to plan anything. And um, therefore she planned the garden um, and I had to do it all, um, which I'm not complaining about. It was fine and I needed the exercise, let's be honest. Um, this beer belly is not going to uh, go away by itself. So that's what that that's what happened. <laughs> so my whole body aches. Um, okay, so I'm going to stop waffling about that. Right, um, this episode, I think you probably were expecting more of the Ted Fletcher lectures because there is quite a few more to get through. Um, however, I had this interview ready to go with Ryan Poole and it turns out he's got some cool stuff going on that's quite timely. And uh, being the uh, the sort of community-minded person that I am, I thought it'd be nice to a, squeeze this in um, because of the stuff that he's got going on, which you'll hear about at the end of the episode, but also because it gives a bit of a break. Um, these sort of lectures, are they are quite heavy, um, and although you guys all seem to be really enjoying them, um, I think it's probably wise to uh, to take a break, and then we'll maybe do, uh, I think there's four left perhaps, so maybe a little group of four after these couple of episodes have gone out. Um, so Ryan is a producer and a drummer as well, actually, um, which just everyone seems to who I connect with seems to be a drummer, which is fine. <laughs> um, and he has a band called Night Tides, N I T E Tides, and you can find a link to their music in the uh, Spotify playlist that I put together. And it's it's modern music, but it's got a real, real sort of Beach Boys harmony mentality, and, and chordally it's very Beatles. And um, and he uh, reached out to me on in- Instagram. I said reached out. Oh my goodness, that's the uh, that's the term that you're not supposed to say. He got in touch with me on Instagram and uh, I just fell in love with the music. So I was very keen to get him on. Um, And he's a really lovely guy, as you'll hear. So we chatted for quite a while. So these two episodes are a little longer than uh, my usual episodes have been of late. Um, I really do hope that you enjoy them. Uh, And we'll just get straight into it. Here we go. Ryan Poole of Night Tides. Yeah, well, my name's Ryan Poole, and uh, uh, my trade is I'm a producer and engineer. So I went to school for audio production and initially was planning on just being an engineer. And um, I got to move, I moved to Nashville from Southern California back in 2012 and was pursuing the audio engineering route, kind of the standard way. And, um, And then somebody, I had a friend who kind of, helped to call out in me and to recognize that producing might actually be more my niche. Uh, not that I didn't have engineering skills, but that, you know, I wanted to do, I wanted to have input on the creative side. And so, um, I've been here almost 10 years and been producing and engineering both, uh, all of that time. And then in the last two years, I started a band, um, called Night Tides, Unfortunately, I spelled it N-I-T-E to be retro, uh, which causes a lot of confusion. 
And um, that was a passion pandemic project that was initially just a way uh, for me to be able to call all the shots and have all the ideas and not have to, you know, I've infused quite a bit of Beach Boys and Beatles. Um, those are kind of my two primary favorite artists from the 60s. Yeah. And I've infused a lot of that into other people's records here and there. But a lot of times I feel like I have to do it on the sly um, <laughs> and not tell them that that's where I'm pulling that, influ that influence from. Um, but with my own project, I figured I could be just as Beach Boys and Beatles-y as I wanted to be. And so, yeah, so I started that and kind of did most of everything with it. Um, brought in a friend to do some guitars, but played and sang and wrote and all, all the rest, produced, engineered, mixed. And then it kind of has grown from there and we've done more and more songs and I've taken it more and more seriously. And now it's turned into a full band and kind of it's shifting from a solo project to a band, a uh, proper band. It's a... Uh... I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that, that the band is what brought us kind of together. I mean, I, you, you, uh, I remember maybe you sent it to me or I came across it on my feed or something, but it's, it's got that um, sort of real, um, how would I describe it? I mean, I'm, I'm saying this, but your, your latest single's called yeah. Live and Die in Misery. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was just about to say how sort of positive it all feels to me. <laughs> yeah. It's the happiest sounding song with the darkest title. Yeah. <laughs> it's just got that. I mean, a lot of the production on it is fairly um, sort of current, I suppose, but it's definitely smacks of that kind of, you know, lots of thick harmonies and the just the sort of the feel and the. I, I want to use the word groove, but I'm going to get told off by people who don't like that word. But um, Oh, I love the word groove. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's become a bit of a. It's become a bit of an odd, a sort of um, loaded word, hasn't it? That word, anyway. Um, huh. But it's got a. It's just got sort of a happy feel about it, which reminds me of of kind of you know like like you've mentioned the Beach Boys and some of the, um, in terms of feel, some of the early Beatles records, and then in, some, in terms of um, some of the sounds you've got happening in some of your earlier singles, there's definitely a later Beatles influence going on in there. Um, but I, I just really enjoyed that, and it, you could tell straight away they're just incredibly well-crafted songs. Um, do you want, I'm interested in just diving straight into your sort of songwriting process, and we can mm -hmm. we can sort of get a bit of background on on kind of uh, your other bits later on. But that's where my head's in immediately. Going. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. So, I mean, how did how did sort of these come about, and what did you have a vision that's that's kind of been realised, or is it? sit you with an acoustic guitar and then it sort of grew into this project or how did it all kind of come, come about for you? Well, uh, initially I would, uh, I, I, I set out to kind of try to make a modern indie sort of, you know, indie music, which means everything and nothing, but, um, but kind of do an indie band sound. Um, and as a producer, I've kind of played, you know, just about everything on somebody else's record at one point or another, other than singing, um, but I also help people songwrite, and particularly if a client brings a song that I feel you know needs a little help, I'll sit down and help them with it. So I've just been exposed to all the different kind of parts of it. Uh, but so initially, I just wanted to make an indie song, and I there's a band called Daywave that's not particularly huge, but I really like. They have a very like lo-fi. Um, there's some some 60s to it, but it's probably more 80s. But I wanted to do something like that. And then so for the first song, I just needed lyrics 
Um, and the music is really the part I care to craft. And so I was like, okay, I got to write some lyrics and I kind of spit them out pretty quickly. Um, and that was a song called forever baby. Um, but since then I've, once I started taking it more seriously and it wasn't just about putting out a single for fun, then I went back to kind of what I believe, uh, it, a good artist should do, which is start with a really great song. And so the first song I wrote in one day and all the rest of the songs have been written over usually months. Okay. Um, and so now I actually care and spend time with it. <laughs> um, but uh, as, as far as process, I, uh, piano is the instrument I feel most comfortable writing a song on. I'm originally a drummer. Oh, so, yeah, so drums is what I would feel comfortable playing on a stage um, the most. But piano is the instrument that I most feel comfortable to... I, I understand where all of the notes and the chords are. Um, but really, this is kind of a funny, odd thing about me, but I really kind of mostly stick to the key of C when I'm writing. Interesting. And that's just because that's the key that I've spent the most time with. And in, in, here in Nashville, we have the Nashville number system, if you're familiar with that, yep. Yep. where people don't talk about chords. They talk about, you know, it's it's number. And so the root is one, et cetera. Um, so when I moved here, I was like, okay, crap, I got to know this Nashville numbers thing. And so I started in the key of C, just trying to think about numbers instead of chords. And I, I really need to expand that knowledge out <laughs> past C. And, and I have, but C, I know how to do a flat four and a sharp five and a flat six and a minor every, you know, like in C, I don't have to think about it. And so my songwriting process for Night Tides, because I'm trying to, the inspiration is Beatles and Beach Boys songwriting. And it kind of came out of a process of me spending about two years practicing piano and just learning Beach Boys and Beatles songs and realizing that they used a whole lot more chords than most of the music I grew up with. Yes. And so my primary kind of the thing that's driven me, what, what gives me inspiration is to try to use just about as many chords as I can use and bring in all these chords that I never um, had access to before. And that inspires me because it gives me new places to take melodies. And it's just a fun challenge to figure out how do you put a key change in every single song, but <laughs> how do you do it in a Brian Wilson way where yeah. nobody knows it's a key change? And, and that's kind of what has inspired me. So I sit down behind the piano and I just come up with as many cool chord progressions as I can and a melody. And the first big bulk of songwriting is just that. And then later for me, I sit down and figure out the words. Something that I find quite interesting. So I've got, um, I mean, I must talk about this project in every other podcast. So I'm sure the listeners are really bored of me hearing it. But this, <laughs> um, this album that I'm currently in fact, it just got sent off for mastering yesterday. Um, I'm working on with a, a songwriter called Ron Ryan, who wrote for um, the Dave Clark Five. And he writes all his songs in C, which is... Uh, oh, really? Yeah, exactly the same as you. And he... what I, As you were kind of talking then, I was thinking... Because it kind of sounds a bit restrictive. It almost feels like a... Um, Forgive me for saying it, but a bit of a childish way of doing it. Like, you know, all sure, the, yeah. white notes on the piano. You just sort of I am a child at heart. <laughs> kind of, you know, it feels a bit simplistic. But actually, if you 
are using the same key all the time and you uh, you know a lot you know if you've got a guitar or a piano a lot of the time people get inspiration from a certain sound that they're making and uh, where you know where that might be on the fretboard or where that might be on the piano whereas if you've if you're restricted to the key of C, then you've got to be creative in other ways and you've got to find ways of being more creative and come from a slightly different right. angle. And it never crossed my mind when Ron told me that he writes in the key of C. I just thought, okay, well, that's the range of his voice, you know, and I just, it didn't even give it a second's thought. And as you were saying that, it did occur to me that, you know, there's the whole sort of way that creativity um looms is when you have restrictions placed on yourself and that's a pretty major restriction whether you're aware of yourself doing it obviously you're aware of playing in C all the time but whether you're doing it to become creative or not um but i think it means that you must focus on the song a little more and make the melodies that little bit different because you're you're in a familiar place on the piano all the time when you're writing right and sometimes i switch the key out of c after it's been written yeah um but the the real point for me is I don't think I, th I think you can kind of trick yourself that you're doing a new creative thing by using different chords that you don't usually use but at the end of the day if the progression is still one five four it has the exact same feel it's just a little higher or a little lower yes. and so for me I don't th I think if you're smarter on the keys than me and you can think numerically um, and or however you do it in every single key really well then you know I'm sure Jacob Collier <laughs> doesn't need this limitation I have. But for me, this limitation allows me to only think about the way that chords move into one another. So one five four is a certain feel, you know, that's Baba O'Reilly. Mm -hmm. Six five four is gonna give you a certain feel. Um all all of these different progressions do different things, but when you're only in C, I'm not tricking myself like, wow, I got in a B flat. I don't usually use B flat. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, and had you written an awful lot before uh, you kind of wrote this? You know, you mentioned you're doing production and, and drumming, and obviously, like I'm a, I'm a drummer and I do yeah, lots of production. And I, I used to write songs once in a while, but it's not something that thrills me much. And this feels as though I feel as though you might come from a similar place where you perhaps didn't write so much, and suddenly you found this rich vein of, of creativity. You know, I wrote as a kid, and. And then again, as a teenager, um, I, I guess I go through a f almost like a phase. It comes every four or five years, you know. Um, I wrote in college um, here and there, but I never really did anything with my songs. And, and so for the past 10 years, for me, songwriting has been a tool that I use to help others make their songs better, you know. And I think by me having a knowledge of songwriting as a producer, when somebody, when I can tell the song needs help, then that helps me to help them make their song better. But my writing didn't have an outlet, so it wasn't something I focused on. Yes. Yeah. And then it's, it's only now that I've created an outlet, and now all of a sudden that's opened up the need to, to write. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Did you, was it a sort of um, a big leap to, to put your music out there and put your name... I mean, I know it's it's a band name, but it's still putting your name to something. Whereas when you're on a production side of things, there's almost some something slight you, you slightly mm -hmm. detached from the writing itself. Yeah, there is a bit of a buffer. Yes. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I think it did take a lot at first. The biggest thing that I've I've been a part of a lot of releases as a producer, so most of it I'm comfortable with. The voice was the main thing for me. Um, I've never loved my own vocal tone. 
Um, and so for the, for the longest time, that's what held me back from doing my own thing. And, and then I just had this moment of realization, like, you know, I make really bad singers sound better. And in kind of indie music, it's not really about having a phenomenal voice. It's kind of more about having a vibe. And, um, I can use cool effects to make. So if you listen to the very first song I released, it's very effect driven and the vocals are, are deeply back in the mix because it wasn't something I was confident about, but I figured I would just make it cool. And then after releasing that song, I think I gained a lot of confidence because nobody said like, what the hell are you doing singing? <laughs> you know, like you fool. <laughs> so and people shared the song and generally responded positively. So then each song, kind of the vocals have come more up front as I've been a little more comfortable. Like, well, maybe maybe I'm allowed to sing too. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Talk to me about how you built the tracks. Obviously, you mentioned it's a bit of a lockdown project. So I'm assuming that a lot of it was you playing. Um, how, how did the, you sort of realize them from, from the piano into sort of full production form? So now the band has shifted and we actually have a band where we have members playing each instrument. And so now we're recording with the guys in the band. But the, the earlier songs and where it started, um, you know, I work on the song until I've got a good thing going with I, I, I like it uh, um, just on the piano, which to me is if a song can just work on a piano or acoustic guitar, then it's a good song. Now we could do whatever we want with it production-wise. It could be any genre. It could do you could do whatever you want if it's a good song. So um, I switched to the drums because that's you know my native instrument, and so I go ahead and lay down a scratch piano track in Pro Tools uh, to a click, and then I go to the drum kit um, and yeah, spend four or five hours playing parts until I'm happy with them. Um, I don't do. I don't think I do much on drums of note, other than um, I do. I sing while I play. I sing the song while I play, which I think helps to kind of uh, you know hit, make hits happen with vocal cues and all that. Um, I know it's. A, I kind of got that idea from Travis Barker, who was kind of my hero uh, growing up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't know him, but just I heard him say that in an interview. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, and so I would I mic'd the drums myself. Usually when I'm with a client, I'm actually spending a lot of time kind of getting a drum sound in advance and compressing everything on the way in and all of that. When I'm doing it, because I can't be here to hear my own levels, I just, I use very light compression and then compress a little bit more later. Um, uh, yeah, and so uh, one of the, f the fun things, I'll continue from here, but if you want to know about drum miking, like I think that's the funnest topic, and I'm happy to like Let's come back or just go there now. Go, go wherever your mind's taking you. That's fine by me. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to drum miking. Um, um, it's just so I can like get the thought out of the process. Go for it. Go for so, it. So, so I'll do drums, and then I'll come uh, back, and then usually it's guitars next because. Genre-wise, I feel like it's uh, what I want to create is a more guitar-driven genre. Okay. And so usually I'll start by laying down guitar ideas. Um, guitar is not my strongest instrument, but I can edit really well. And so I'll come up with some ideas, kind of put it in a direction, and then I'll bring in 
from the very beginning, I've brought in my good friend and now our official guitar player, Zach Ummer. And Zach will come in and come up with all sorts of cool leads. And he's he's very much into a band called The War on Drugs, if you're familiar with them. Yeah. Yeah. So he has just all the pedals in the world and all the cool flangy phasey choruses, tremolo. He's always got something new. And he'll come in and just um from the beginning it's been a very good marriage because he he thinks like an artist. Um he actually has his own artist thing that he does that he's been putting music out under. And so he'll come up with really cool stuff. We share a lot of genre, um a lot of favorite bands and all that stuff. And um yeah, so once Zach has his guitars, um, usually I'll switch to vocals, um, get down a lead vocal, which I always double. Um, you a lot of times with like modern pop production, I'll do three vocals on somebody. Okay. For 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 Night Tides, I always just do a single double because I think it 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 leads to a more indie sound. It also ha- has a more retro sound. I think when you only have two, because you get more of the pitch warble between them. Yeah. Um, and then I have a fun time in the mix, whether they're going to be wide or if I'm going to put them both dead up the center. And then it's harmonies and harmony wise. Um, the, a lot of the songwriting, I feel like I think about the Beatles. And then when I come to harmonies, I think like the beach boys. Yes. And um, I, I've done thus far, all of my harmonies are on a D19, um, <laughs> which, yeah, which I really enjoy because I'll do the lead vocals on either a U87 or Sony C38B. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a proper condenser microphone, they're going to, you know, they're going to sit more forward in the mix and all of that. But when with the D19, it's a... it's a slightly darker sound. It's a dynamic microphone. And... Um, and it also is a little more lo-fi. Yeah. And so all of those harmonies naturally blend together because of that. And they sit behind the lead vocal without having to create that effect with EQ. So I think it's it, mixing with the microphone. Yeah, it's and it, that's kind of interesting, especially for... I mean, it, we kind of spoke a bit before about who the listeners are. And there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of engineers listening to this who will think about microphone choices in that way. But there'll be a lot of kind of... Um, I suppose amateur producers um, who are doing it who who might not think about it that way and and a D19 is a really in, interesting microphone to start thinking about exactly what you're talking about with you know if you have a large diaphragm condenser at home um, do, for doing your lead vocals then you compare that to something like a D19 which is essentially you know 57 you know 60s 57 um, yeah obviously it's got a little more character than a 57 but you can re- you can absolutely hear the difference in those two mics, and you can see why the D19 makes the perfect BVs mic. It's it's never even crossed my mind to use them as BVs because I I don't just think that way. <laughs> mm. It's all the way over there. You can see it on my kit, so I'd have to yeah. make a conscious decision to go over there and fetch it. Um, whereas when I'm doing things like that, I just grab I grab whatever's nearest in there. That's just how my mind works. <laughs> but yeah. now, now you've described it, you can picture exactly that sound. You know, the the way that the, a D19 sounds is lends itself to BVs completely. You know, it's it's almost got a um, a high pass going on straight away without you needing to do that, and it, it feels it's it's just got that kind of slightly slimmer uh, back in the mix kind of feel as opposed yeah. to a large diaphragm condenser, which, as you say, is going to be right up front like a lead should be. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, yeah, and I think it just it ends up making so all of my harmony stacks are absurd, <laughs> and so <laughs> oh, well, I've heard them. They sound. Are you just ripping it as you go along, or how how are you thinking about it when you're doing that stuff? <laughs> um, so I it varies every time, and I think w- that's been one for me a key as a producer and and now as an artist is to constantly vary my process. That just keeps me interested and engaged. Um, and inspired. And, um, you know, I think if I did it the same way every time I would get bored and then I would stop. (laughs) So, but I mean, there's sort of some rules. Um, I kind of, for most songs, I will do a pass of singing the lead vocal, but the chord of the song, um, which I'm not classically trained in harmonies, uh, which has been mostly, I think an advantage in my career because a lot of people are, and they naturally think about the third and the fifth and laying those things down. And then my, my mind just goes to wacky stuff. Um, <laughs> but so I kind of figured out like, oh, hey, it kind of gives you that uh, Beach Boys and or like vocal, um, what do you call it? Barbershop quartet feel, yeah, you yeah. know? So um, so I'll sing, you know, if the key, if the chorus, we have a song called Your Window. The chorus is C, E minor, F, F minor. Okay, so I'm going to sing a C, then an E, then an F, and then an F with the same lyrics as the lead, and then come back and do, you know, the third, the fifth, and usually a seventh, because I think that helps make things sound like the kind of older 60s vibe. Um, A lot of times I'm also, the seven doesn't work for every chord, so then you just switch it to being the octave, uh, where where the seven doesn't work, and so that'll be your, your kind of fourth line. So like I'll create that pass, and then all of those are doubled, and then all of those vocals usually live together, um, and that'll be one stack. And then I'll come back, and I'll do uh, more interesting harmonies, the kind of things that my brain just naturally goes to, which is a lot of, I, I think mostly it's me picking notes that just sound pretty, but not sticking to a specific line. Uh-huh. So. I'm probably alternating between adding a second and a third and a fifth, just depending on what seems to work well with, with the specific melody and chords. And so I'll create all those harmonies, which is, you know, it is a lot of seconds and fifths. I really love those intervals. Um, and then I'll come back and then I'll do your kind of more traditional BGVs. And I think that's one of the things that gives you more like a period specific sound is to go, you know, to do, I'll do ahs and oohs, but I really try to do a lot of like repeat lines where you take the same lyrics from the song, but now you create a new melody and they're maybe slightly delayed, um, you know, and then maybe you feed off of that. And so, I don't know. Does that kind of make sense? Oh, completely. Um, what, what I enjoy is because I know, you know, the, the sort of writing and production process, you're not thinking about this stuff necessarily as as outwardly as you are right now. I mean, you, you're that will be in your brain, but it will be just coming out as you're doing it. You probably are just doing it because it sound, that's the right thing to do. And I'm enjoying hearing you talking about it retrospectively, but obviously yeah. <laughs> you know what you're talking about so well. Um, you know, you clearly, you say you're not trained, but you, you obviously know, you know your eggs. <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, I've been trained by just being in Nashville because the, the kind of musicians that are here are just, uh, every, I mean, it's a, Phenomenal, phenomenal musicians all around, 
And it tends to be more musicians that are trained here um, than what I'm accustomed to. Coming from Southern California, more of the musician I was around were just people who were picked up a guitar and kind of self-taught. And that's my background coming from like pop punk bands and just, you know, picking up a guitar or a drum set and making a fun, loud sound, you know. Um, but coming to Nashville, people here are so trained that a lot of them have gone to Berkeley School of Music or they've gone to Belmont or uh, we have a friend who went to Juilliard and have that training. And so for the last 10 years, I've just been listening to what they say and then asking them questions uh, and, and picking up some of that stuff as I go. Um, but I'm not naturally that kind of thinker, but I, I luckily have been able to be around some people who are to kind of access uh, some of their thoughts. I, th I think that's really important, and I, I uh, not to always my, my defaults back to the Beatles all the time. But, hey, me too. <laughs> yeah, that was that's Paul McCartney's very similar in terms of his background. You know, he not for one second does he not know what he's doing on the guitar. You know, he he absolutely or on the piano, he absolutely does. You know, he's an incredibly knowledgeable musician and. You know, perhaps in the early days, they will have just been feeling around a little more. And as it progressed, I'm talking feeling around uh, musically on the piano and sort of finding the sounds that they're familiar with. But, you know, you hear, watch interviews with Paul talking now and the way, the way he discusses music, that he absolutely knows what he's doing. And that, but he's not classically trained in the sense that he went to any kind of college or anything. And, you know, I did. I went and I studied jazz and... Sometimes it's taken me a lot of years to come to this sort of around to the fact that I think that was okay. <laughs> I basically spent 10 mm. years trying to forget what I learned at jazz school and, and play simple. And, uh, you know, kind of at a, a happy point with it. But sometimes I think training can be to a detriment as opposed to a positive thing. Um, and sort of learning on the job, like knowledge is a good thing. So right. you know, the way you're coming from it, uh, is where uh, what I think is sort of the perfect marriage. So you you know what you're talking about, but you've learned it in an experience-driven way as opposed to a classroom way. And I think that's the point I'm making. So I think I think it's it's really interesting listening to you talking about it, given your experience. Thank you. Yeah, we've got a one of the guitar players in our band is uh, his name's Nathan, and he went the traditional route and he got a degree at San Diego State um in in music uh and then he went to belmont and got his master's in composition um and then he graduated and went straight back into school to go to computer programming and so you could tell he's just a total nerd um <laughs> but he he's uh just really a genius when it comes to understanding music um and he's somebody that i've been working with for years now as a uh as a friend and then also i've hired him to play on certain projects i've done and then now he's in the band and um, I think that the best marriages is when you have people like that who can access that knowledge um, and then also people who are, you know, maybe not as trained who can make some fun mistakes. And so he listened, the funnest thing, I don't know if I'm throwing him under the bus right now, but in all the early Nighttide songs, when I would show him, he would be picky about my chords. And I'm just like, yeah, I just wrote a freaking chorus that went to a bridge to another chorus and, and over that 
span of whatever, let's say 20 bars, we raised one key and did it through the most weird chords. And so I'm stoked on myself because I'm like, this is Brian Wilson. <laughs> and then he listens to it and he understands the deeper theory and he knows exactly what I'm doing in a deep way. And he's like, uh, this is weird. And you're just doing chords for the sake of doing chords right now and that you shouldn't <laughs> be doing that. But to his credit, he would come around in the end because kind of um, all of my chord progressions are very overthought and over overdone. But then, I've, I mean, I come from a pop music background. So when I go to add guitar and other instruments around it, everything I'm doing is a lot more simple and just pop oriented. And so you... the all of the weird progressions end up getting kind of smoothed out and, and then you don't notice them so much. And so anyway, he's kind of um, in the beginning been cynical about this, the progression choices. And then at the end, he's like, okay, you know what? You did make it work. Um, but anyway, not to just throw him under the bus. He's a huge <laughs> asset to have in the band. And uh, no, of course, I, I mean, I, I get, I completely understand what you're saying. I, and I think that's where the sort of the, it's, it's a careful line to tread. You know, I work with a huge amount of artists um, on drums and, you know, I, I have to, no, I, uh, I'm saying it like it happens often, but once in a while a song will come along where it's not quite working for whatever reason and I have to make the decision, whether, yeah. you know, whether it's my place to say something or whether I just keep Sturman and, and that's, you know, do my job and that's that. And I think that having a little too much knowledge is occasionally a bad thing because your, you know, your mind instinctively goes, um, well, that's incorrect. I can't do that chord to that chord. You know, that's not right. <laughs> Before you've even made that chord, your subconscious has told you that you're not allowed. And that's where forgetting those things and allowing yourself to have that bit of freedom is, is a good thing. You know, if it sounds right, it's right kind of thing, uh, as opposed to, to having any restrictions Placed upon what you're doing, based based on preconceived ideas of something. Right. I was working with an artist yesterday, the, the duo called the Robertson, and um, Jeremy, who's one half of the duo, uh, really great guitar player, just super super good, and very in touch with the brain finger component, and knows exactly what he's doing. And he was writing a part, and my brain instantly kind of filled in. You know, I, I don't even remember the melody, but he played three notes and my brain went, this is the rest of that melody and this is how it transitions to the next section. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, sat down and, and it took a second for me to kind of communicate that in a way that he understood. And then after he got it and played it, he's like, you know, I really enjoy working with you because he's like, I'm in touch with all of what's happening with the chords underneath. And he's like, you're not. And you just kind of instantly... <laughs> He's like, what you're hearing musically is different than what I would hear because I'm kind of locked in a box. But on the other hand, you know, not to um, overly praise my side of it, like I, I, I like what I bring to music, but I need to work with somebody like that who can access all those things. I couldn't play what he plays, first of all, and I would have never done the thing he did that first inspired me. And so I really look at it as a producer, like they play what they play, they're somebody who's a master of their instrument. They have that knowledge. And then I'm able to come and go and hear some things maybe they wouldn't hear and then go, what about this melody or this idea? And then hopefully enhance and bring something new to what they do. 
but it takes it, you know it takes somebody who's really smart at what they do and then somebody who's a little dumb like me to come around and go <laughs> you know it could sound like this but that's where that's what the you know it's the perfect thing and that's where um all of those you know the best ideas come from those exact situations and that's why that's why collaboration is is really important and uh yeah, I just think it's it's a an interesting observation that I'd not really thought about an awful lot until you kind of uh, until until I thought about it as you were speaking. Then, <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's George Martin and the Beatles. Exactly. I mean, it completely is. <laughs> it's um, yeah. It's uh, it is that, and I think you know, on a slightly less um, like not as deep as George Martin's knowledge was Lennon and McCartney. You know, I think McCartney's you'd call McCartney the trained one and Lennon the, the untrained one. Uh, <laughs> That's quite a funny way of describing John Lennon, actually. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> something I was kind of interested in while you were talking was the whole sort of being a producer and songwriting thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of like that idea because I think that it's, um, this isn't a, a negative thing necessarily, but a lot of artists tend to get quite attached to their songs and I get uh-huh. the impression that you're not as attached to your songs um, because, well, for whatever reason, um, you know, when you were sort of saying, I write on the piano, the song becomes a song, and then it can be whatever it's going to be after that. And that's how sure. I like that. That Personally, I think that that's a really positive thing. And, you know, you listen to a lot of the sort of Beatles demos that they put together and their songs were often all over the place. You know, they would have versions that sound completely different from other versions because they're just trying loads of things out. And, you know, we've all been in those writing situations where they feel a bit sticky and and heavy with, you know, if you've been in bands in the past and, you know, someone's like, oh, something's not quite right. And they can all can all get a bit heavy and and not fun. (laughs) And I like the idea of having a song and not being too attached to it and just letting it do its thing and going like, okay, cool. I'm going to make it into this thing. And then you make it into that thing and then you make it into another thing. (laughs) And then you, you know, or just let it be what it wants to be as opposed to having too much attachment to it. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm in complete agreement. Um, I, uh, a lot of times I'm working with my clients to help develop that mentality in them. Um, so that it can, but I think a lot of times I'm trying to coach people like, Hey, the very first thing you thought of might not be the best thing that could possibly ever be. (laughs) And I think developing that kind of humility about it and being open-minded to like, Hey, it's, it's no, it's no, uh, dig on you that, that the first thing you thought of isn't the greatest thing on the whole planet. You know, the first thing you thought of had some real merit and the first thing you thought of is now going to inspire us. But maybe the second thing you think of or the third thing you think of might be even better. You might like it even more. But I think what happens with bands is they, um, they, or even solo artists, they sit in a room and they play what comes to them to play and they find out a guitar part and a bass part and a drum part and all these parts and they find something that works. And then once it works, not a lot of change happens. And I think kind of view it as my job to kind of go, all right, what you've created is step one. It's version one of this song. It's a great version. We love it. And a lot of times I'll have people um, play version one and we'll even maybe record version one in a very demo raw way. 
And then I'll say, okay, great. Version one exists. That can never be undone. We can never take it back. It exists. It's in the universe. And we can always come back to it. But why don't we spend a little bit of time seeing what else might exist and see if something else even better or more exciting to you is out there or in you. And then um, depending on the artist and how um, experimental they're willing to be, we'll do all sorts of things. So one of my favorite clients to work with is a band called Dawson Hollow. Um, you should definitely look them up. They're a, they're a, a Missouri indie band, and I uh, really love their music and really love them as people. And they are just um, the kind of people who are, who are very welcoming to try out new ideas and have fun with it. And so with them, I kind of create different games um, because they're the kind of people who would get into that. And so... Um, we had a, I had a game, I didn't tell them the name up front, but the game was called um, Kill the Sacred Cows. And so before I, before I told them that, I said, okay, let's lay out, what are the sacred cows of this song? What are the things that you must have? Like that this is what you like about it right now. This is the good part. And I had them all list in depth their favorite part of the song and their favorite part on their instrument even. And, and then I said, okay, this game is called Kill the Sacred Cows. We have to play a version of this song where none of those sacred cows exist. So you loved that it was happy. Great. It has to be sad now. You know, you loved your bass line. Change the bass line. <laughs> um, and so we did that. And I, and, and I will tell you, when you do a Kill the Sacred Cow version of the song, that new version sucks. It's terrible. You killed everything good about it. Um, <laughs> But it does get them to see it in a new light. And sometimes there's something new they do that they actually like, and then they bring that back into the other version. Mm -hmm. And so then we did a, uh, you know, the Sacred Cows Revive kind of version. And so, like, Revive, I don't know what I called it. It was a cleverer name at the time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so now we did, okay, the song can only be the Sacred Cows. Ever, anything that wasn't a Sacred Cow, that's what must change now. And we did that version, and that version was way too happy. And it was, it was lame. Um, and so I like to kind of push things and see, you know, let's go far, too far this way and then too far another way. And then we said, okay, let's play a new game where we're going to try the song in new genres. So somebody suggests a genre of music, and one of the guys in the band suggested ragtime. Nice. And it helps that they're phenomenal musicians and can use their brain to think, what does ragtime sound like, and then try to do that. And so they did a ragtime version of the song, which was stupid. But the cool part of it is they came up with this line um, that was like, da 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 da. And everybody loved that line. And so then that line became one of the hooks of the song later on. And, and on and on. We did, a, I mean, we spent two days of pre production just simply exploring what the song could be. And, and then we would, we would record these versions and we would take notes. And after each time, we'd stop and say, okay, what, what did we like from that version? What did we not like? And, and you'd usually pull one new idea from each weird detour you took. And then we came to the end and said, all right, so how are we going to get all these great ideas into one song and pick one specific vibe, one specific groove on the drums? Now that I know that's a four-letter word, I'm going to want to say it all the time. <laughs> And, um, and then we created this hybrid version that, that became the new version of the song. And then once they came into the studio, 
that's a template to start from, but then each instrument as we laid down drums, it's like, okay, great, we have a we know what the core feel is, but now how are we gonna take that to the next level and make these drums even cooler, more signature, better, etc. Um Anyhow, uh, if if your listeners are interested, that song is called Summer Snow by Dawson Hollow, and you can hear uh, the the crazy mishmash thing that we made, and um, I think it turned out well. I think they like it. I, I love the, just like you said it before, it's the humility surrounding that. It's the idea that, um, you know, no one is, uh, you can imagine that situation, somebody somebody going, Oh no, mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. You know, I I don't, I, I can't bring myself to do that. And I love that sort of detachment from right. what's going on to, um, to go. You know, look, no one's going to make you stick with this idea. We're just right. just fun. We're just going to do it for fun. And it sort of obviously that's you're going to like the extreme of it, so that you know, say you're you're pushing them a hundred percent out of the comfort zone, so that they bring twenty percent back. And that exactly, and it's that twenty percent. But it, I, I really enjoy that idea, and that's something that's I think um, it's a really special part of music production. That it's a, an important lesson for for people to take away is that it's often, I, I, you know, as a as a sort of remote musician, that's one of the things that I have to battle with. Um, a battle is such a strong word for it, really. But when I speak to people, um, you know, I always have a, a phone conversation or a, a Zoom conversation with whoever I'm working with because it's there's no other way of communicating effectively. You can't do it via email. I don't think you can't get right. that, that mentality of, you know, when I'm sat around my drums with all my percussion around me and I'm just trying loads of stuff out and I'm like, Hey, here's what I came up with. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, I might've gone, if we think of the percentages again, I might've gone 50% further than I should have done. Yeah. <laughs> but that's where my mind was. And, you know, it's kind of working for me and, and I send it over and they go, oh, and like very, if I haven't had that sort of conversation with them where I, I manage that expectation of this is what's going to potentially be coming, depends how into it I get, <laughs> um, then they might get the, the song back and go, oh, right, wow, um, okay. <laughs> Whereas now, now that sort of thing's been overcome, they can, they can approach it with the attitude that you're talking about and have a little bit more freedom around it and go, oh, okay, there's some kind of cool stuff in there. I actually don't like this and this and this, but that one thing that you did was really cool. And yeah. That experimentation is a, you know, if we kind of link it back to the, the sort of pre-Pro Tools era of, of sort of recording, it's, it's that. There, there seemed to be a lot more of that. Um, and then it kind of all got a bit restricted and a little bit more um, pulled in. And that's um, because you could have too many options in a sense, whereas, you know, pre-Pro Tools, <laughs> you, you just were stuck with what you had. And people right. had to be able to... You know, there had to be a sort of forgiving mentality of, oh, the, well, that that happened on that take, but we're using that take now, so I've just got to live with it, <laughs> um, and we can't go back and do mm-hmm. it all again. And I, I enjoy that that kind of um, freedom in the studio and and humility. I, I like that word specifically as a as a way to just sort of describe an approach in the studio. Thanks. Yeah, and not every. Not every artist wants to go down that road. Not every artist is willing to go down that road. I'm, I don't even know that it's the best road and the only, it's not the only road. Yeah, of course. But, but when you have somebody that's willing to go down that road, it's always fun. And, um, and I think very often creates some really fun results. And so. Also think I, we haven't done any gear talk. <laughs> so yeah. I'm yeah, sure. Like, 
to talk um, about your studio. <laughs> sure. I'm, yeah, presumably this is where you're at now. It is, yeah. Yeah, I can see, yeah. I can basically see the door and some records and a, and a guitar. <laughs> can you see the jukebox in the background? Is that what that is? Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I have a bunch of uh, 60s kind of artifacts in here. To my right, you can't see it, but I have a cigarette machine. Um, not presently working, but it looks cool. Um, yeah, so my studio, so I'm in Nashville. I'm in a neighborhood called Music Row, which is historically kind of where music was made in Nashville. It's now, it's since spread out. There's still music made here, but there's music made in all sorts of other places around town. Um, my studio is kind of a hybrid in that it, it, it is a build out. I didn't build it out. It's been here since the 90s. Um, but it's in the basement of a house. And so it's kind of like a home studio because it is in a basement, but it's also commercially zoned and it's, um, it's right in a neighborhood where like a commercial and residential meet. It's, it's a weird mixed use neighborhood. And so anyway, in a lot of ways, my, my studio presents like a commercial studio, but it also has a pretty homey feel being right underneath a house and all, um, one fun fact about it is that it used to be owned by Waylon Jennings, the, the country singer. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. And um, so I don't really know the history of what he did here because it's that's a very hard thing to find out, as I've learned. Um, but he, he did own it at one point in time, and then the people before me did a lot of different country music artists here. Um, and some bigger, pe- some bigger country artists have walked through the door. Um, but myself, I've been here for four years, and I mostly work with, like, again, quote-unquote, indie artists. So, indie folk, indie Americana, indie indie, indie rock, indie <laughs> alternative, indie pop, just kind of anything that's sort of, like, slightly left of center. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's a bit of backdrop on the studio. I have one main tracking space, and um, it's like a 25-foot by... 10 foot room so it's really it's long and sort of shallow um i've got a drum kit in there i've got a, it's a uh, a ludwig uh i don't know the model off the top of my head because it's actually a friends that who, who has stored it here um but i track that thing all the time i've got a uh, piano an organ uh, a Wurlitzer 140b um I used to have a Rhodes, but I sold it to buy a Rickenbacker recently. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just got a Magnetone guitar amp, uh, the stereo panoramic, uh, which are super, super cool. Yeah, yeah. And um, other than that, I've got a, uh, I, for all of my tracking, I use an Alltech 1220 desk. It's uh, 10 mic pre's, and then I feed that into a Universal Audio uh, Apollo. And um, the Alltech 1220 I heard of from an uh, engineer named Ryan Hewitt. Um, and if, uh, if people aren't familiar, he's top. I mean, he's a world-class engineer. Um, Red Hot Chili Peppers. He just did their newest album, but he's done several albums with them. Uh, he mixed a Johnny Cash record back in the day. He's done uh, the last Lumineers album or several ago, Ophelia. Um, and just, I mean, the Avet brothers, on and on and on. He's just kind of world-class guy. And he mixed a record for me several years ago. And ever since then, I've kind of just followed him on social media and everything. And he he got this Alltech 1220 desk and was really singing its praises. And so I ended up finding one on Facebook Marketplace for 
70 bucks and and it's it's basically a live console from like 1969 or 1970 fantastic i'm just i'm googling now while you're uh uh-huh have you got the meter bridge on it i do yeah very cool um there seems to be a bit of a a thing about these sort of um I don't know what you'd call it. Like basically not, um, you know, not uh, branded in a, with a name that we all are completely familiar with, like Studer or um, Neve. Uh-huh. But like, you know, I've got this Alice, little Alice console that I use here. Um, and Alice was a, a British company, but it's, it's the same. It's kind of, it, this was made for the broadcast market and for uh, regional theatres in the West End in London. Mm. Um, and it's, there seems to be a kind of cool little, um, subculture of finding these desks that have got really great analog gear inside them, and um, and not yeah. everybody knows all of the secret ones yet. So everybody right. out buying Altec desks now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are um, really high uh, harmonic distortion pre's. Um, that I have a tech who fixed it up for me. Even if anybody's listening, if you need a tech in the Nashville area, Jim Harvath, just DM me. Jim is a, a actual genius, <laughs> and um, and his his fame is growing throughout the area. But he fixed up this console for me, and he said, "You don't even want to see. You don't want to see the specs I made for it." Like he's like, "It sounds cool, and you like it, so don't look at the don't look <laughs> at what it does." <laughs> Amazing, I love it. On the um, when people are listening to this. So uh, we've just um, we've just finished a whole series of lectures that I've been. Um... Oh, I listened. Oh, have you been listening to them? <laughs> they are great. I wanted to say you should go into audiobooks, man. <laughs> I have heard a lot of people. I've I've listened to a lot of audiobooks, and I've heard a lot of them that had a less um, interesting voice. Like you should just read audiobooks and make your money that way, or just oh. add. I mean, not that you shouldn't do what you're doing now, but add that to the to the resume for sure. I mean, I, it's it's pretty relaxing. I'll I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I love the fact that sort of Ted talks about. Um, I I just read one yesterday, um, which will be coming out. Um, what day is it today? It'll be coming out tomorrow, Monday, uh, Tuesday, twelfth. And uh, in that episode, he talks about exactly kind of what you've just described. That a lot of um, modern uh, modern sort of uh, audio units are too focused on. Uh, being perfect essentially um, uh-huh. you know it, as long as it if you know actually having uh harmonic distortion is a really positive thing and right but, but specs don't make it look that way um so you know the it's all about scrolling through the internet and seeing the highest specs unit but actually the highest specs unit doesn't often equate to the nicest sounding unit and uh, right. kind of exactly what your tech has just said, the, the, you know, the non-lecture version of, of that exact thing. Like, don't look at the specs. If it sounds great, it's great. Yeah. Is it, I mean, I, I suppose it's a little rough and ready sounding, but in a positive way. Like, it, it's kind of a bit gnarly sounding, which is kind of what my desk sounds like. And I, I, they, yeah. I imagine they're quite similar in terms of... Well, if... If uh, anybody listens to a, a Dawson Hollow or a Night Tides song, you'll hear what does it sound like when you record every single input through this Alltech 1220. <laughs> and um, 
it's it does make things a little more lo-fi in the end. I think in a perfect world, you wouldn't use this desk for everything as I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you would. Um, it would be great if I had a Neve here also, and I could. Um, b- b- the all tech is very. It has a lot of distortion. It uh, doesn't have a ton of low end and. One thing I've loved about it is I find myself reducing less low mids in the mix because it doesn't do a lot of that. Um, so that's kind of nice. Um, but if you could, you would you would want more pre's than just an Alltech. And you would have the Alltech for when you want that flavor. But for the past uh, two and a half years, everything I've made has been through this flavor. And again, I guess that speaks to limitations. I think... Um, Presently, I'm okay limiting myself to only this desk, and that's mostly just because I don't have the money to go buy an an API and a Neve on the side. Um, but so I have to work within its boundaries and its limitations, and it changed how all of my records sound since then. But for now, I like that. Yeah, I, I mean, so I'm going to say something here that makes me has potential to make me sound like a bit of a knob. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but I did a session at Abbey Road last week. And it was in um, the, uh, the called the Gatehouse Studio, which is like a like the third studio, well, fourth studio that they've got down there. It's it's made. It's a sort of smaller, slightly um, glorified production studio. Essentially, it's got a kit in it and a Rhodes and an upright, nice upright piano and stuff. But it's got a um, sixteen-channel Neve desk um, with eight ten seventy threes and eight ten eighty fours. I think they were. Um, anyway, kit sounded lovely on it, but I've had the, the multi-tracks back and I've listened to the kit on it and it does sound good. But part of me is thinking, it just sounds really good. And, <laughs> uh. <laughs> and, with it. and, you know, I spend all day, every day listening to the drum sound that I get here and I'm so used to the quirks that, of the drum sound that I get here that I'm kind of like, yeah, that just sounds great. It just sounds clean and good. And, uh. And, you know, just not as exciting as uh, yeah. what I'm used to. And I think that that's sort of testament to having a bit of, of gnarly stuff. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not saying that what I do is any better than the, the sound that they can achieve there. Um, but it was just surprised me at how not exciting it sounded to me. Um, wow, yeah. And, um, yeah, it sort of it did t- make you take... I sort of kind of went, oh... That was a, just a, li- a little underwhelming, but I suppose that's what they do. You know, their, their job there is to make stuff sound really clean and tidy and, um, you know, not put any color in it unless, unless asked. Um, you know, extreme color I'm talking about, obviously. Needs right. Color, but, um, yeah, it was just curious. And, you know, I think that speaks to, you know, having sort of some of this older gear and, and some of it does ha- it has quirks. You know, I've got a few channels that don't have EQ working and I've got, you know, there's some certain nuances of, not this desk, but some of the other gear that I've got that you have to work around and, and those kind of cool things are quite exciting to have around and it does make for an exciting sound um, and it makes it interesting to work with. Yeah. So where can people find out about uh, you and Night Tides and all the kind of stuff that you're up to? Yeah, so Night Tides is, uh, Instagram is the main place where I put out information uh, and, and content. And so that's at night underscore tides and night is unfortunately spelled N I T E <laughs> from a marketing standpoint. I think it's cool, but it's marketing is terrible. So N I T E T I D E S. And, um, and, and then I'm at Ryan pool music. Um, that's P O O L E. Uh, and so, um, yeah, presently, 
Uh, oh, and I should also say, you know, Spotify is a great place to follow. That's obviously where we channel most of our music releases. I have um, a, a podcast playlist actually that's in the show notes. So I'll put, oh, cool. I'll add a couple of your bits to the to the playlist so people can check it out there. Cool. Do the good ones. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're all great. I'll do the ones that are at the top, the most listened just, to ones. Just don't do the bad ones, you know. Um, <laughs> no, so the, um, yeah, and then right now we are present. Night Tides is presently in a competition here in Nashville. The, our our big local. Uh, independent radio station. So the radio station that'll play things that aren't, you know, clear channel approved. Do you have clear channel in, in England? No. So, uh, well you have BBC, like, right. Like one, two, three and et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Very different system of radio. Uh, we have giant companies that do radio and it used to be that every radio station was its own Island and could okay. do whatever they wanted. Um, but then a company called clear channel bought like all of them. Uh. And, so Clear Channel applied business metrics to the radio and figured out what it is that will be the most successful station. And as you might guess, the most successful station is not the most creative station and also doesn't allow much opportunities for artists to break through. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> it's a phenomenal documentary people should watch called Before the Music Dies. And it's all about this phenomenon oh. um, and how it can make it hard for creative acts to break through when you're focus testing everything and looking because often what people think they want on first glance is something very familiar, but, um, it takes more effort to introduce people to something new. Anyway, bit, that was a big tangent, but, um, our local radio station that isn't beholden to clear channel is, um, you know, the Monsanto of radio stations is uh, lightning 100 and they have a, a competition going right now called music city mayhem. And they pit 32 bands against each other, all of them very talented because it's Nashville and the, the level of talent here is is really good. Uh, but um, we're in that competition. We've just made it through round one. Round two is this week. I think when this podcast comes out, God willing, we'll be in round three. <laughs> and um, and so people, if you follow us on, on Instagram, you'll see when to vote, but would love it if your um, audience... If uh, if you're interested, if you could vote for us, the links will be on Instagram. It's uh, lightning100.com/slash/musiccitymayhem. But there's only like a specific voting window of one day. So when we do round three, you have from like 6 a.m. to midnight Central Standard Time to vote, and you have to have a valid U.S. number to do it as well. So uh, unless you have that in England, you're, you're you pretty much have to be in the states to do it. But would would love your vote uh, because the winner gets a bunch of prizes and gets to play a big show and and it's kind of just generally a really cool accolade to have here. It's um it's all I can do then just to will people to do it, seeing as I'm here in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Well, we'll put links to um to all of your socials and stuff in the um in the show notes below. So please do go and and click that and um, and you know. At, at the very least, go and check the tunes out because uh, that's the whole reason that we're here is because I checked them out and I was like, these are absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> um, Thank you very much. But, yeah. So there we have it. Episode one of my conversation with Ryan Poole. Um, really hope you enjoyed that. Uh, the next episode, we start talking all about 
drums, which is my favorite subject. <laughs> so I hope that you'll enjoy that one. Um, even though I know that not all of you are drummers, I think people seem to enjoy listening to drummers talk about drums and uh, recording drums. So yeah, I think you'll enjoy that one. Please do go and check out Night Tides. I implored you a little bit during the episode and I'm imploring you again now. Um, they really are fantastic and anything we can do as part of this community to help each other um, in sort of the way that the music industry is for artists these days, I think it's really important that we do try and help each other. So please do go and do that. Um, that just leaves me to say, if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate it on iTunes or uh, however you can rate the podcasts through the medium that you listen to them. Um, and feel free to share with friends. Um, you can visit my website, allyouneedisdrums.com, where you can subscribe to my mailing list, find out about all of the isolated drums and drum sessions that I do. You can also find me on Instagram at allyouneedisdrums. Um, you can contact me through my website or joe at allyouneedisdrums.com if you've got any feedback or suggestions or anything that you want to speak to me about. I am just the person at the end of an email address and I will get back to you. Um, and yes, I'd like to say a huge thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, to Adam Mallet for the artwork that he supplies, and to Rory Hancock for editing and uploading and making this podcast happen. Um, and I will be back next week with more from Ryan Poole. Have a fantastic week. Speak to you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.